We are in Hebrews again, and I love this book, and I love also when, uh, as I am preaching through a section or a, a book in Scripture, and it just has a tendency to land right where it needs, right, right where it needs to land. And, uh, and that's not me. Um, I didn't know what was going to happen over the last little bit. And, uh, but God is a way maker. Let me also say this. We were walking in Louisville at about 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night across the bridge into New Albany. And as we were there, we beautiful sunset, and as we were taking a picture of downtown Louisville, we saw the helicopters circling above downtown. Uh, we were assuming that it was the news that was videotaping the protests and the riots. And there are a lot of government officials and individuals who are trying to come up with solutions for the current predicament, but also for the larger discussion and conversation. I firmly believe that God can use our government and individuals to enact um, certain, build certain parameters, set certain parameters that can certainly aid with acute conditions, brief momentary conditions. Folks, the gospel is the only thing that's going to relieve us of this. It's the only thing. And God is a way maker. And oftentimes he makes his way through the church, through his church. If there is any solution to be found, it will be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ that is presented by his faithful church. Do not forsake the gospel. And if you have ever questioned whether or not sin runs rampant through the hearts of men and through our world, there shouldn't be any question now. Sin has broken everything from the ground up. And we are looking to be reconciled, and the only reconciliation to be found is through Christ. Today we are in Hebrews chapter 2. We are going to finish Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to... Uh, have you remain seated this morning as we read, and I'm going to remind you briefly of where we've been. And today is a particularly poignant day, uh, poignant passage for us today, as we are coming out of this quarantine, meaning that we're able to restart some things. Um, but it's particularly poignant for me as I look out. Um, because we're going to be talking about the fear of death today. That's going to be one of the, we're at, the sermon title today is entitled Two Questions. But one of the most critical questions we're going to address this morning is this idea of death and the fear of death. Um, and I did not come up with this. The author of Hebrews came up with this. And so that's where we're going to go. Uh, but I think it's very poignant for the time that we're in right now. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, where we have been. What is the author of Hebrews trying to do? 
The author of Hebrews is doing uh, many things, but two primary things that he's doing is he is trying to highlight who Christ is, his magnificence, his glory, his wonder, the amazement that is Jesus Christ, his supremeness, his, uh, are there any other words that you can use? I mean, honestly, um, just how marvelous Christ is. So he's highlighting that, and we see that in like passages from Hebrews chapter 1, where it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is Jesus. So we're talking about who Christ is, but also what Christ has done, the work of Christ, because part of the glory of Christ is not just his nature, but also his work. They go hand in hand. And so as we continue down through chapter one, we see what Christ has done. He has made purification for our sins, for all sin, for all sin and the effects of sin and the consequences of sin. That's what Christ came to do. He came to save his church. He came to free us, and we're going to talk very specifically about one item that he's done today, like I said, that is very poignant for the situation that we're in today. And then later in chapter 2, we, the author is discussing that Christ is the founder of our salvation and how he has become the founder of our salvation, that he is the, the glory and the radiance of God in part through the sacrifice that he made on the cross. Christ and the cross cannot be separated. They cannot be separated. Often we see in liberal scholarship how they try to separate the person of Christ from the work of Christ because the person of Christ is a lovely thing, especially for liberal theology. And what I mean by that is that Christ was a good person. He had good morals. He cared for the poor. He was socially active. All of those things. But the work of Christ is offensive to individuals who do not want to believe that they are sinners, who do not want to believe that they are fallen, who do not want to believe that they are less than their own masters. So they want to separate the person of Christ from the work of Christ, but they are one. They are one. And therefore, we then end in Hebrews for today, chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. And we're going to see some of the implications of the work of Christ. And so we're going to answer two questions today. We're not going to answer them in full, because to answer these in full would take many, many sermons. But we're going to answer the two in part. The first question is this. Why did Jesus come in the flesh... Why did he have to take on this miserable, fleshy thing right here? All right? And number two, the second question is, what did Jesus' death accomplish? What did it accomplish? So we're going to answer those two in part this morning. And so the passage we're going to be reading here is chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. And it says, Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Exceptionally poignant passage, especially for today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the worship that you've already accommodated us with this morning, Lord, and we are grateful for that. Father, I pray that you would continue to be with us and allow us to focus our hearts in on the work of Christ. And we are so grateful and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so I cannot begin, and I would especially, um, we've got a few little ones in here, and I hope that they're listening this morning. I hope that you all are listening. Uh, some of what I'm going to be talking about as I was rehearsing this in my mind, as I was writing it, as I was reading it, as I was rehearsing it, I'm like, man, we, we have really, we're, we're beating a dead horse here. We have talked about these things over and over and over again, but I think that there is a beautiful spin that the author of Hebrews places on this, and I think it warrants us talking about it again. But before we begin about the work of Christ and the implications in those two questions, I think I need to raise one point, and that is this. This passage does not make sense. In fact, I would say this, the work of Christ does not make sense if we do not understand sin and the penalty of sin. If we don't understand that, in essence, let me put it this way. If you believe that you have no sin, then what you're basically saying is that you have no need for Jesus. If you don't believe you have sin, then you have no need for Jesus because Jesus came to save you from your sin. That's why he came in the flesh. And so let's talk just about the penalty of sin. I don't want to minimize sin. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not a mistake. A mistake is when I add two plus two and say it's five. Oops. A mistake is when I measure wrong, when I'm building a birdhouse, and I end up with a crooked crooked roof. That's a mistake. Both of those things I can fix. Sin is a transgression against a holy God that I cannot repair. That cannot be fixed. There is no amount of wood that I can rebuild. There is no amount of glue. There is no amount of erasers that can erase that mistake. There is only one solution, and that is in Christ. Let's see what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So sin enters into the world through Adam, and we are thereby afflicted with that original sin, which causes us the the, the tragedy of being unable to do anything other than sin. I mean, that's what we do outside of Christ. We are sinners outside of Christ. And then in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. What do I mean by that? What I mean is the transgression against a holy God, however so slight, is so great, so condemnable, that it warrants death. That's the wages. Even if you are seven or eight years old, 
Sin warrants death, even if you were 80 or 90 years old. You can't say, well, bless their heart. They just can't help it. No. Outside of Christ, you can't help it. That's the point. Sin merits death. Sin is a death sentence that demands its weight in blood, and that's our blood. But at the same time, now this is the glory of God in Christ. At the same time, God loves us. He's gracious. He's merciful. He desires reconciliation. And reconciliation is no small thing. It's no small thing to be reconciled to the God of the universe. I mean, think about reconciliation in our own lives. Have you ever been reconciled with a friend, with a loved one, with a family member? Maybe you and your spouse have been at one another, and then you are reconciled. Reconciliation is a huge thing, a huge, massive thing, even in our own little lives. But when you're talking about being reconciled to the God of the universe, that is no small thing. That is no small thing. And so today, what we're going to look at is we're going to answer those two questions that are critical for our reconciliation to the Father. And the first one is this. Why did Jesus come in the flesh? And so I'm going to read the beginning of this passage again in verse 14. It says here, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So Jesus partook in the same things. He became flesh and partook in the same things. What does it say here in First John or in John 1? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right, so Jesus became flesh. There is no other religion or faith or philosophy that has the God of the universe stepping down into our miserable flesh to be like us. And that's what's being contrasted in chapters 1 and chapters 2. Chapters 1 speaks of the glory of Christ and all of his universal magnificence. And then in chapter 2, it talks about how he condescended and took on our flesh. Folks, let me put it very simply. Once you've had air conditioning, you don't want to go back to a window fan. Does that make sense? We would never condescend to become like us when we've had all the riches of the glory of God and in the presence of the Trinity. Let me put it another way is this. One of these days, we are going to die and we are going to be in the presence of Christ. There is no one who has ever been in the presence of Christ saying, man, I sure wish I could go back to earth. None of them are hoping for that. Yet Christ, being with the Father and the Holy Spirit and a Holy Trinity, condescended, became incarnate, became flesh to be like us. Now that's love. That's love. But why did he have to come in the flesh? Why? That's the question this morning. Why did he have to become like us? Couldn't he have just snapped his fingers and took care of it? The truth is yes. Because God can do anything. But in his glory and in his supreme wisdom and providence, that was not the way that he decided to do that. And there are reasons. 
You see here, every promise of God finds its answer in Christ. Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. And Christ has been given authority over all things. And still in God's providence, Christ was made incarnate for God's glory and our good. Okay? And so we see the contrast between chapters 1 and 2. Let's look and see what Christ took on when he partook in our flesh. All right? These are some of the things. Christ took on our weakness. Christ got tired. Christ got hungry. Christ got sick. Christ took on our weakness. Christ took on our mortality. Christ could be killed. Christ took on our temptations. He did not fall, but he took them on. And Christ took on our pain and our suffering. And so while Christ never relinquished his glory and divinity, let me be very clear about that. Not at one moment when Christ became incarnate, did he give up his glory and did he give up his divinity? Never. Christ was still the son of God and God. All right. But he did adopt, he did adopt at that time, all these things. All right, he adopted the brokenness that sin has wrought on humanity. So uh, here's what I want. I don't want to carry this too far, okay? I don't want to carry this too far, but I want us to think about something just real quick. Oftentimes when we think of Christ becoming flesh, we then jump forward and we, we, we kind of ignore, except for the stuff that he did, we ignore the person of Christ in the work of Christ and we jump straight to the cross, right? He bore our sin where? On the cross, I want us to think just a moment about this. Christ not only bore our sin and the consequences of our sin on the cross, he also bore them in his life. I want you to catch this. From day one, Christ was bearing the effects of sin. Here you have Jesus in the presence of God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He condescends, becomes like us, and from day one, he has taken on our mortality, our weakness, our pain, our suffering, and all those temptations. Folks, those are a result of sin. And he is bearing those for 33 years until he ultimately bears the consequence on the cross. Pain and suffering is a consequence of sin. Racism is a consequence of sin. Prejudice is a consequence of sin. Lying, all of it, a consequence of sin. So Christ bore the consequences of sin from day one until he ultimately bore the wrath of God on the cross. Now, to answer the question, why did Jesus come in the flesh? And what we see here is this, that he came in this passage to destroy the one who has the power over death through his own death. Christ came to destroy sin and the one who has the power over sin, namely the devil. So in one sense, Jesus had to become flesh in order to gain mortality so that he could lose his life. A God can't die, but a man can. So Jesus had to become like us so that he could pay the ultimate price for us. It's, only, it's actually quite practical. If the payment for sin is death and Christ is the ultimate payment, then he had to become flesh. It just makes sense. It's logical. 
Jesus became like us so that he could die like us and for us. And the other reason is that in the flesh, Christ identifies with our life and our death. I'm going to actually read the remainder of chapter 2. I want you to catch what he says here. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for our sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So he became like us in life and he died for us in his death. Christ must become that which God must punish. That's why he became flesh. Christ must become that which God must punish in order to save us. The incarnation, the incarnation of Christ is one of the most specific ways that God reveals his immense love for us. So that's the first question that the author answers, why he became flesh. It's actually quite practical. He was the ultimate sacrifice. Now, later on, we're going to talk about even more of these things later on in Hebrews, but we'll just rest right there for now. But the second question is even more poignant for where we are. What did Jesus's death accomplish? So the author says this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. So he died so that he could destroy the devil and deliver. So now he's saving, delivering those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What's the author saying? He's saying that we, that we are enslaved to the fear of death. And so in part, Christ came to relieve us of that enslavement. What does Romans say in chapters 5, 6 through 11? For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In short, the death of Christ accomplished what the blood of a thousand bulls never could, the crushing of sin and the salvation of man. That's what the death of Christ accomplished. However, the author of Hebrews also tells us that Christ resolves another consequence. So many of us know the song, In Christ Alone. We love that song, In Christ Alone. Here is the last verse, the first half of it. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. I want to stick on that line where it talks about no fear in death, because that's the emphasis that the author places, to have no fear in death. Now, I want you to listen very carefully this morning. This is important. I'm going to say it bluntly. If you, this morning, are outside of Christ, let me say it even more bluntly. If you are not a Christian this morning, then you should be 
terrified of death. You should be. And in fact, if you are not terrified of death, then you are delusional. If you are outside of Christ, you should be terrified of death. You should be bending over backwards to avoid death. Every waking moment should be dedicated to prolonging your physical life so you never have to face what comes after death. If you are not a Christian. If you are not a Christian. Because of this, and because... Individuals are not believers. They are enslaved to death. Death has captivated their entire life. Death has power over you. It controls your every moment. That's what the devil does. The devil has the power over death only because God gave it to him. But he has that power. And what he does is he enslaves you to it. He attracts all your focus to that and away from Christ, who frees you from that fear. For those who are in Christ, we have been freed from the bonds, from the slavery of fear of death. If you are a Christian... You are not freed from physical death. If the Lord tarries, every one of us will face that. But through Christ, we are freed from the fear of death. And that is absolutely crucial. I'm going to make one point that's not in here because I think it makes sense where we are right now. It is very appropriate during this pandemic for us to be cautious. It is very important. I fully support that. This is an unknown territory that we're in. We should be cautious. However, I do believe there are some individuals that have bypassed caution, and I mean leaders, I mean leaders who have bypassed caution in this pandemic in order to use the fear of death to control people. Folks, that's satanic. That's satanic. That's exactly what the devil's trying to do. The devil is using your fear of death to control you. And we need to be very careful of that. It is very appropriate to be cautious and to take precaution. But we do not fear death. We do not fear death. Now, let, 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 me, let me step back one second. You may be fearful of how you die. Like, I don't want to fall into an industrial meat grinder. That's not fun. You're kind of wondering what's going through my mind as I'm writing this sermon, right? I mean, I was just sitting here, I could trip and fall right into an industrial meat grinder. Why I would be in front of an industrial meat grinder, I have no idea. But that does not sound like a good way of going, and I'm kind of fearful of that. I'm on a tractor in front of my dad's, in my dad's front yard, and I make a turn with a load of dirt in it, and all of a sudden, the front two wheels pop up off the ground. Folks, I don't want to die with a tractor landing on me. That doesn't look good on a headstone. Okay? It just doesn't. I've told you before, it needs to be something dramatic. All right? Something story, something mythic, right? It's got to be a mythical thing. 
It would, it would, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But in all seriousness, in all seriousness, there is a difference between fearing death and fearing like pain of death, okay? I get that. But as believers in Christ, we do not fear death because Christ has freed us from that. He has freed us from that. We know upon the exit from this life who we're going to be with. We're going to be with Jesus. Now, I'm not egging it on. I still take medicine. I still go to the doctor. I still look both ways before I cross an intersection. I'm not egging it on. But I'm not going to live my life so focused on the fact that I'm going to die and forget to live for Jesus. And I am afraid that too many of us, even people in the church, are so focused on the fact that they're going to die that they neglect to truly live for Christ. Many individuals, when you ask them to go on mission for Jesus, they will say, I'm not called to that ministry. I'm just not called to that ministry. When I really think what they're afraid of is they're afraid of discomfort and they're afraid of death. How glorious would it be to die while working for Christ? How glorious would that be? Take precautions. Look both ways. Wear a face mask if that makes you feel more comfortable. Seriously. Seriously. But do not fear death. If you are a believer in Christ, you have nothing to fear. In fact, doesn't Scripture say, fear the one who can take both body and soul? Right? Fear God, not death. Do not let death rule your life. Christ has defeated death, so feel free to live for Christ and to love others for the sake of Christ. Now, what is our response? What is our response to this? Well, here's how we're going to respond to this, okay? Christ became like us to die for us. And Christ died for us to free us from the penalty of sin and from the fear of death. That's what the author says. Obviously, there's more to that, but this is what the author talks about in this passage. So that's where we're going to stay. But let's talk about, okay, then how then are we saved? How then can I be saved so then I no longer fear what comes after, but I can look forward to it? Again, not egging it on, but anxiously awaiting to be with Christ. How do we do that? Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 11 through 13, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Kids, are you listening here, little ones? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are we listening to that? Do you hear that? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. So I'm ending this message here. I want you to listen to this. Becoming a Christian is both exceptionally simple and both terribly difficult. 
How is that possible? It's this. To become a Christian, Christ compels us to repent and believe. To turn from our sin and believe. That's what he compels us to do. What I mean by compels is this. You're not repenting unless the Lord compels you to repent. That's just the truth. If you want to come on Wednesday night, we talked about it this last Wednesday. We'll talk about it again this Wednesday. If you want to know why I believe that and why it's not just your decision, come on, talk to me on Wednesday night on Google Meet. We're right there, and I will walk you all the way through that. The Lord compels us to repent and believe. As we call upon the name of the Lord to save us, we are turning to Christ. So in other words, those who genuinely call on the name of the Lord are repenting and believing. So if you say that you've called on the name of the Lord, but you've never repented and turned away from your sin and believed on the name of Jesus, then you never really called upon the name of the Lord. An earnest cry to Jesus is one where you're saying, I leave everything behind, forsaking all and clinging to Christ. It's what the rich young ruler could not do. If you are enjoying and resting in your sin at this moment, then you have not genuinely called upon the name of Christ. Your, if you are a Christian, your sin should sicken you. But if you delight in your sin, that is of Satan, not of Jesus. Now, I'm getting really heavy-handed right now because this is really serious. This is really serious. I'm not going light and fluffy right now because I want people to know Christ. I want people, when they die, that they see Jesus, even when they fall on a meat grinder. Jesus will repair that. Okay? When we call upon the name of the Lord, we are turning from our sin and turning to Christ. Whether you're eight years old or whether you're 80 years old, we are turning from Christ and turning to Jesus. And that is, a, and we cry out to Christ, save me, Lord, from, the, from a cross, from your deathbed even, or from the beginning of your life when you can acknowledge that Christ is Savior. But it is also difficult. So that actually, you know, what am I doing? Well, I'm repenting for my sin. I'm believing. I'm calling upon the name of the Lord. That does, that's not calculus. All right? It's not calculus. Or for me, it's not changing the oil. That's really difficult for me. All right? Here's what's difficult. And this is where I'm going to close. It's difficult because we are also called to forsake everything for Christ. That's what the rich young ruler couldn't do. He was fine acknowledging Jesus, but to genuinely acknowledge Jesus, you have to acknowledge him above all else, even your possessions, even your entertainment, even your lovely spouse or your children. Christ is above all and in all and through all, and he is on the pedestal, and we have got to remove ourselves. I'm going to just tell you, most people can't do it. Most people can't do it. When we come face to face with Christ, if, if Jesus looks at them and says, I never knew you, I never knew you, and they thought they were saved, and he says, I never knew you, it is likely because they were not willing to give up that which Christ has called them to give up. And they will be lost. It is difficult because we are called to be willing to forsake everything for Christ. So salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. 